Welcome to Australian Book Review's 10th poem of the week, our second in 2016. I'm Lisa Gorton, poetry editor. This week I am delighted that we have Jennifer Maiden reading her long, brilliant, inventive poem, Claire and Nauru. Jennifer Maiden was born in Penrith, New South Wales. She has been writing professionally since the late 1960s, and she has had 22 books published, 20 poetry collections, and two novels. Jennifer has had residencies at the Australian National University, the University of Western Sydney, Springwood High School, and the New South Wales Torture and Trauma Rehabilitation Service. She has also been awarded several fellowships by the Australia Council. Jennifer Maiden has won many awards, including three Kenneth Slesser Prizes for Poetry, two C.J. Dennis Prizes for Poetry, the Victorian Prize for Literature, the Christopher Brennan Award for Lifetime Achievement in Poetry, and the ALS Gold Medal. Here is Jennifer Maiden introducing and reading her poem, Claire and Nauru. When you write a story about escape, one of your aims can be to help the reader realise, as do Rogue Mail or the Scarlet Pimpernel, that the situation the characters wished to escape was always something they, the reader, had known to be evil. This poem is about the further development of the character Claire, who has been active in my work for more than 36 years, and about an exciting escape adventure which is designed to clarify the reader's attitude even further to the island of Nauru. Claire and Nauru Claire Collins woke up in the only other hotel in Nauru that had some roof left on a balcony holding a satellite phone given her by George who'd been given it as a favour by a friend in the CIA. He'd shared beer with in Langley. This phone bypassed both the Nauru police and Australian security, except that it was on a Langley frequency. George and Claire assumed the CIA weren't that concerned with Nauru anyway, and the little phone worked fine. Now George was ringing Claire from Brisbane. He hadn't been allowed on Nauru because they didn't like journalists, even though he objected he wasn't one, just a human rights observer, and his autobiography, The Haunted Brothel, was a work of imagination. But the government of Nauru apparently considered his statement that Nauru was a greedy little hellhole, made him a writer of fact. Picking up the phone, she told him, You just woke me up and a couple of Nauru reed warblers. They're nesting in the top edge of the roof and they seem to be the only native species the locals don't eat. As if to prove her assumption, the straight-beaked birds began loud warbling in a long, fine treble. She walked down with the phone to the harbour, which was full of vast, rusting machines, from before the rich phosphorus ran out. She said you'd love it here. Apart from doing anything for money, they're all super-ego Christians. Everyone swims in their shorts. He gave that quick snort laugh of his. She missed him. Shorted swimmers glared at her deeply with the same expression that she recognised from old photos taken two centuries ago when such locals were posed in a sullen throng with coat-clad missionaries. She thought they'd be formidable in a fight. The rain, which was rare here but heavy, fell around her in hot, salty drops of the sort that is cried by children. She watched her own wraith-like swimming shadow in the water sway like a shark, just sensing the close proximity of fish. She was here to see a detention centre victim. 
She sat on a rock, let the rain soak through her like human comfort. George recalled, with his yen for anti-austerity, their problem there is that they really fell for the myth about good risk and weird investment going around in the 80s. They had the guts to declare independence when Australia wanted to resettle them, uh, all after the phosphorus, but they spent their money overseas trying to make more money, not on building or maintaining on their island. And now they're broke, said Queen, the rain proving the CIA waterproof and she herself mad to the Baltic swimmers. Do you know that one of their investments was a musical that had Leonardo da Vinci in an affair with the Mona Lisa? It was a bomb, she added, just to see what effect that last word had on the phone. It clicked a bit but seemed to function normally. George always loved such vital trivia. He said, I know all about that. I saw it in London. It was called Leonardo the Musical, A Portrait of Love. My daughter wanted to go. I think she couldn't believe it existed, but it did. He could have said Sheridan, not my daughter, as she and Claire were old friends, but he liked the unusual fact that he was a father. The rain ceased and it once dried out. She said, I'll ring you later, let you know what happens with Hanan. Love you. His own love you bounced back with a speed and lack of echo only CIA technology could probably have provided. Back at the hotel, she avoided detention centre guards who had arrived for the poker machine down at the back. She had hoped this less expensive place wouldn't attract guards, but there was gambling here and Chinese takeaway. The whole place stank of soy sauce and the sweat of loss like something out of Graham Greene, she thought. Remembered that George had said at the end of one James Bond novel, the villain drowned in a sea of guano, bird-like phosphorus. She herself had wondered, was it flammable? The wide, stripped, bare belly of the island, with its lawn coral peaks clawing up where the pasty soil had been. One could not plant crops here now. The lagoon of fresh water near here shone toxic. There, generations ago, young saltwater fish had been trapped by the tribal families and adapted to fresh water, kept to grow for food like the family pigs. She had killed her younger siblings as a child was too familiar with death by intimacy, not to dismiss it with dry disdain, however well organised a system. Hanan, a Somali girl in her teens with long, deep, elegant bones, oval face alert with the detachment of the fashion runway, or the bright runway of trauma, stood in the tattered hotel car park waving. These days, the detainees were allowed to walk about the island, something the Nauru government called the ending of detention, so the board guards ignored her as she walked to Claire too fast. Claire knew names were the first thing with trauma, asked, Hanan is lovely, what does it mean? And Hanan said, compassion, maybe, mercy, and yours is light in French, yes. Could we walk to the lagoon, please? Yes, wider lagoon, when they reached it, spread like an impure viscous emerald, palm trees not suggesting wealth and pleasure, as elsewhere than he thought Claire, but rather... Things stunted or jittery, weathered wan. The sun, so close to the equator, seemed to throw shorter shadows, arid things of man-height, finished like thin ghosts of the living people, who are heavy, diabetic and opaque. Claire smelled the saltless water. A row of tyres caged it at the road's end. They rested. Hanan said, I was there when they burned down the detention centre. Before that, the local people were more friendly, but they thought they were going to inherit the centre when we left, and when it was destroyed, they thought the prisoners had taken away their property. I suppose they had felt so much taken already. Also, I've seen the guards act badly. 
and I think that may be why what was done to me was done. Although the men who attacked me were local no ruins, I was walking the road round the island's edge at the time, and there were five of them. Were you raped? asked Claire, taking the checklist for trauma from a mental pocket. Of course, but you can't claim that here. They say you're parroting others and become aggressively patriotic. A nurse agreed with me, though it didn't go much farther. But since then I've been bleeding, and I think it's getting worse. So did Claire, who saw a darkening stain on Hanan's mended skirt, quickly turn to liquefaction. Claire asked, why, why did we walk here? But she knew there is more than one manner to sew the lips together. So she said, I know they have an ambulance. It was given to them by someone called Count Oppenheimer. I'm calling it on this, and why of the phone? They won't come for us, said Anand, but Claire had mastered a banshee shriek in some impeccable North Shore accent, and they came. Count Oppenheimer's ambulance was in, some, it was in better shape than the hospital, which was broken, burnt and battered, hingeless in decay. The registrar, who saw Claire's reaction, said, they're pulling it down next year. Your government is giving $26 million to build something better because we can't airlift people to Australia now, and so no point in fixing this one anyway. As night swelled down, they'd almost stopped the bleeding. Claire had found out that Hanan was O-positive, and since so was she. She sat next to Hanan attached to a tight tube. There was no blood, ba blood bank here. The families gave blood among themselves. When Hanan was finally asleep and looked more sanguine, Claire realised a fat Nauruan policeman had someone from Australia had arrived. They weren't concerned with Hanan except to remove her from the hospital as soon as possible without a downright murder, but the untappable phone had made them angry. They didn't know how it was being used and thought she was a spy to save the children. She phoned George, who spoke in fine patrician Virginian, suggesting suggested they might lie to check the frequency and not the fuck interfere with the business of the company. They seemed unsure, but after a while left her. A Nauruan nurse in a heroically clean uniform sat down. Beside her took the tube of blood and said, She should not go back to the detention centre. It's full of mould and rust and bad infection. It's even worse than here, but what can be done to fly her to Australia? I came to write a report, said Claire. I'll write that, and the rape thing might help for a petition. So late-night uselessness crept through her veins like a transfusion made her sleep. Claire woke up in the only hospital left on the dead island of Nauru, but thought at once, there is another island, and heard some reed warblers at the window, which was wrecked enough to see them, if you try. Hanan woke up too and said, the emergency response team are going to kill me if I go back to the centre, in a way that Claire, who'd seen the photos of those men cheering Hanson in Queensland, thought might well be accurate. She said, at any rate, have more blood, and found the nurse from last night who agreed to help with another transfusion, but also lingered until Claire suggested she shouldn't stay on Nauru, should she? No, the nurse agreed. So to whom can I donate some aid, said Claire, and for what? I could rent a boat and a captain to go to Banaba Island and then to Kiribati, where there's an air service. That would be a day, and then another day at sea. You're right, said Woken George, they'll kill her. Take her to Kiribati and I'll get documents. We'll find her some family in London. But anywhere in Europe would be better. I'll be with you in Kiribati in two days. The great thing about Banaba Island is that the council live on Rabi in Fiji. There were cluttered caves near the long modern airstrip where they waited until the boat was ready to the northeast of the island. Then they strolled there in the innocent daylight, as all could do in this new improved freedom of Nauru. 
The boat was in a shallow cove concealed by palms crouching bushes. The crew comprised the nurse and her sister and their auntie. Theirs was a stalwart, strong boat which could sail comfortably a day to Banaba and then an even longer day to Kiribati. They spoke of economics on the way as the old motor chugged and sinewy auntie sat with them in the cabin, resting ready for the night. She said the island had so much money for a little while. They could have spent it on my boat and others. We could have built up soil, planted vegetables and gardens, had hot water all the time, real hospitals, health centres. But those bastards spent it all in other countries. They thought the Australians were right and that you put money into something that was meant already to make money. Then you got money back in your own, own pocket. We have 90% unemployment now and no one can pay tax so we scrounge it all from other governments and blackmail. Claire, relaxing with the boat sway, holding Hanan's sleeping hand, said, Yes, I couldn't believe how your government established diplomatic ties with China for $130 million and so broke off relations with Taiwan, then re-established ties with Taiwan and severed them with China. Aunty grinned, yes, and kept the money. Then we recognised Kosovo to get cash from the West and Abkhazia, which got us, I think, $50 million from Russia. I think it was $50 million, agreed Claire but at least those two stayed recognised. They laughed and Artie dozed off too as Claire thought there could be no better night pilot than her. Claire was looking forward to the sea sky tonight and in fact it did not disappoint when she woke up. This was more stars than she had ever seen before and a moon with its head on her shoulder. Always on the verge of speaking, the hues of the sky emerging with black in any indigo shape possible, salt in the air rippling with undercurrents. One skin no longer any kind of barrier, an auntie steering as if this boat did not need more than stylized attention. The nurse, having left the wheel to sleep, told Claire, Almost half our population suffers from type 2 diabetes. The French experts blamed it on imported food. But the French suggested Claire blame everything on food. Do you think some of it might be hereditary? She remembered those early pictures that showed predisposition to plumpness as well as to serious resentments. The nurse shrugged, perhaps, but more medical services would certainly solve some problems. Hanan was awake on deck, looking more her age than she had on the corrupt island. Claire, who hadn't previously enjoyed Gogan all that much, thought he might have merit now in that he showed tough innocence, solidifying brightly in this landscape. She discerned Banabra Island by the dawn. Then Artie and her nieces brought back breakfast from friends there, but they returned promptly to the open sea, with the neat nurse steering and Artie snoring softly in the cabin. Next morning the dawn found them Kiribati, which was longer and lower than the first islands, much more clearly at the mercy of the sea, but nonetheless a dulcet place. They had docked on an uninhabited island after she phoned George and he was there to meet them. Artie and her nieces hugged them like their family, would tell an invincible story of a visit for two days with faithful friends on small Banaba, accepted more money and more breakfast from George and then put out back to sea. George found himself quoting Houseman unexpectedly and saved the sum of things for pay. Epitaph for an army of mercenaries explained Claire to Hanan, who said, They do not always do the wrong thing. They were right not to be resettled by Australia. And those three women are my heroes after you. George changed the subject knowing how poor Claire rides privately at any place. He said, let's find you a human rights doctor, then, however, we can fly you somewhere safe. Kiribati, Claire thought, had sand as white as the moon, as white as innocence, as bloodless white, as magnetic white as power. <laughs>